I'm Rob Trusinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Charles C.W. Cook of NationalReview.com. Uh, thanks for coming on with me. Thanks for having me. So I think this is sort of a time when a lot of people on the right are sort of reevaluating the sort of ideological foundations of the right and asking, what do we stand for? What are we about? And that's an issue where I wanted to talk to you specifically about what it's like to be an atheist on the right, which is a boat that I think we're both in. And we're not alone, are we? I mean, there's a sort of a subgroup of prominent people who are uh, not religious believers who are on the right. Yeah, I mean, I I think you have to ask uh, what sort of atheist um, a person is, uh, and and uh, uh, that affects how they interact with the right. I, I always like George Will's description of himself as a low voltage atheist. Um, I am that too. Uh, I mean, I'm not an agnostic. I'm not. I'm not somebody who is sort of pantheist. I, I do not believe in God, so I actively don't believe in God, but I also don't care. And uh, I think that probably matters. I think if you don't believe in God but are angry with him, mm -hmm. um, then then it would be more difficult to be on the right. So th the only point at which this affects me, and this does happen occasionally, is when people say, well, you can't be a conservative and an atheist. Right. Um, right. And that, that does happen from time to time. But in general, um, it doesn't. And I, and I think that I think that matters uh, that, that I'm not sort of against religion. Well, I think I call that sort of the uh, the Catholic school atheist. It is right. You know, the most fanatical atheists I know were people who who went to Catholic school and their sort of fanaticism about it is they're still trying to get back at the nuns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. They, they had it shoved down their throat in some unpleasant way and, and have a bad association with it. So they're out for revenge in a way. Right. And, and that doesn't describe me at all. Um, I, uh, I, my schools were religious. My university was nominally religious, mm -hmm. but it was never particularly important. Of course, the Church of England is not especially devout anyway. And so I, I always saw this as, as a, a, at worst a curiosity. I mean, it never, it never affected me negatively. Um, and I suppose in some ways I'm quite pro-religion. Um, I don't, again, want one. Uh, I don't believe it's true. But uh, I think that the question of religion and the question of conscience rights are inextricable. In fact, one of the things that I think is, is odd about many atheists who are not conservatives uh, is how quickly they seem to, um, uh, how prepared they seem to be to throw conscience rights overboard. And, and I think this is a mistake for a couple of reasons. The first is, I mean, of all the people in human history, <laughs> the atheists should be the most in favor of conscience rights. Um, but also because um, when I see somebody stand up and say something, uh, you know, either that I don't agree with or that I think is nuts religiously, um, I don't look at that and say, well, that's a threat or, well, that's unscientific primarily, although you know, I, I could. I mostly look at that and say, well, isn't it great we live in a country in which that person is free to express that view or hold that view? Um, and, and so as well as being sort of philosophically broadly in favor of, of religion as a social force, um, I'm also pleased that it thrives, and I mean that for all religions, not in the way some people say that to me, just Christianity. I mean, I mean for all religions, because to me that is a check on the state and also an example of a genuinely diverse, in the way the word should be used, society. Well, let's think of this, and though I want to start in terms of how it works for you personally. That is, you know, the idea of being an atheist and being on the right or even being conservative is not a combination most people think is normal. So how do you combine those things? How do they fit together in your worldview? Well, I mean, if I were being puckish, I would say that the same instincts that led me toward conservatism and libertarianism actually led me toward atheism, which is a general skepticism, uh, a general distrust of authority and hierarchies and uh, the belief that I don't need anyone uh, to sit between uh, myself and power. Um, if I were being more generous toward toward religion, um, I would say that uh, contrary to the views that a few religious people who are less tolerant of atheists uh, have, uh, it, it's entirely possible to believe in natural rights um, and to believe there are lines that can't be crossed and to believe that there are moral precepts that should be universally accepted without believing that they come from a deity. 
Uh, I mean, some, something I get quite a lot is is the question, well, if you don't believe in God, why why do you think murder is wrong? Right. Um, well, I mean, I can believe in the sanctity of life, whatever that means, without believing that uh, it is related to anything metaphysical or related to uh, sort of infallible text. Um, I, I think it is self-evident that uh, that taking away people's lives against their will um, leads to a great deal of destruction, not only for the person whose life is being taken away or diminished, but for everyone around them i think i mean i think that is an obvious lesson of history well that that's um, what i, I think I, of it in, often in terms of the lessons of history uh yeah. that you know we have five thousand years of human history in which we know we've tried out various different systems we've seen how different ways of organizing a society work and you can draw conclusions from that rationally yeah. and scientifically yeah well absolutely i i i mean it, it and this this shouldn't be especially um this shouldn't be especially controversial firstly the, if, if we're looking at american conservatism and its foundation in the constitution it is a fact that although some of the founders were religious uh most of them either were not religious in in a traditional sense uh, or were not religious in a way that would be accepted now um so it's not as if they had some special religious group that that uh, you know wrote the constitution because it was dictated to them from on high um but um I think the other thing is that it, it is the position of the Catholic Church, unless I'm mistaken, that the views that it holds, although divine, are also uh, reachable by reason. So doesn't it follow that I could reach them, even if I don't believe in God? Now, they would say, well, there's the faith part of it, and you know, I understand that. It's, I know that it's not good enough to, for, me, for me to hold that position as far as the Catholic Church goes. But it is also true, according to them, that I can come to the same views via reason. So um, I don't know why we would assume uh, we would need a, a, a religious component um, to any sort of conservative precept. Yeah, I, I think that's also something that's underestimated about the founding fathers. I think you you would I, something you wrote you had mentioned America might have turned out differently if instead of being founded by Christians, it was founded by followers of Spinoza. But on the other hand, what we really got was both. We got sure. a country that was founded by people who were Christians for the most part, but who were also devotees and influenced by Enlightenment philosophy. I mean, not just Jefferson, but Adams and and uh, you know it was. It was throughout America that the leading men of the time were enga engaged and involved in the Enlightenment ideas uh, coming from, from Britain and, and to, to a lesser extent from France. And so we had this sort of combination of they were Christian, but they also believed in, well, they believed in nature and nature's God. Yeah, yeah. And, and that matters because uh, so many of them were deists. Um, so I think that as an atheist, if you were to tell me that I should believe in uh, God or religion, I think I would draw up a continuum and a, 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 of what is the most likely and least likely to be true. So I can, I can just about get on board with the deist idea. Uh, it, it is not much different than believing, for example, that the world is a simulation. So if you take the deist uh, conception of the world, um, that holds uh, that... Executing systems, the the, the weather, um, the the uh, you know Newtonian um, uh, rotation, all of that. Uh, but he's not responding to your prayers, and he's not intervening. So that that's on the one side of this continuum, and then all the way on the other side of the continuum are specific claims that are made about what happened a long time ago, uh, specific claims made about what is moral and what is not, what is approved and what is not, what one has to do in order to obtain a, a place in the afterlife, and so on and so forth, and so. You know, we, if you start with, with deism, you'd sort of move along, 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 and then you would get sort of past lay preacher and into some of Protestantism, and all the way you get into this ornate high church and then Catholicism, if, if we're doing Christianity. Um, and that's fine. I mean, my wife is a Catholic. I'm respectful of it. I'm really not. Uh, some of the smartest people I know are devout, um, and, and I'm in no way condescending toward them. I don't look down on them. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but the founders, as you say, were actually... Not only were, were many of them not religious in a traditional sense, but a lot of them didn't have any of that ornate stuff. They just had the deism. 
Um, now, again, the skeptic would say, well, yes, and that made a lot more sense in 1800 because we didn't understand germ theory. We didn't understand you know, quantum mechanics, all of that. Um, but again, even if even if you don't hold that to be your, your, your worldview, um, they, they were not particularly steeped in anything, uh, anything that you would you would call prescriptive. Um, and, 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 and I would call them conservatives. I mean, they were radicals, but they were also conservatives. They believed in the glorious revolution. They believed in natural rights. They thought they were restoring ancient British uh, ideals. Um, and if, if I hold to the same viewpoint, why can't I be one too? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting that the, the American Revolution is the only revolution carried out by conservatives that I know of, where it was right, all about, right. you know, we have this system we had all, we had all along. We're trying to restore it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, that gets into this horrible semantic problem we have in America, which is um, if you are conservative of radicalism, what are you? <laughs> are you a conservative or are you a radical? Uh, and I would say that I am a radical, but uh, I am also conservative of the constitutional order because it is radical and I want to keep it that way. So, yeah, we have this, this problem. And so you end up with, with this um this sort of annoying progressive talking point where they say, well, conservatives are on the wrong side of everything and progressives are on the right side of everything, right? Because, because, you know, but actually that, that's, that's not really how it works. That's not how those intellectual and ideological lineages go. Um, but it, it's, it's more of a problem that, you know, in, in a classically liberal country than it is in a, pro, a country like England. How so? Well, because in England, what you are, protecting often contains an awful lot of illiberal uh illiberal presumptions right so if you're um now this isn't this isn't always true in fact england and england is a worse example than most because it has that strain of of liberalism in, in my sense of the word too right um but if you're a conservative in you know austria throughout history you've generally been in, in involved in protecting the monarchy and protecting the aristocracy and protecting an established church and protecting the power structure as it existed you want um, the empire and the emperor back yeah you want the exactly exactly you want the emperor back but if you're a conservative in america you are interested in conserving some fairly radical small r republican mm -hmm. ideas for example um universal and almost untrammeled free speech uh, the right of the individual citizen to bear arms, um, you know, <laughs> arguments against state power that are contained within the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, um, the uh, the freedom of the press to say whatever it likes about the powerful. You know, the, these are not ideas that are, are conservative in any European sense. They're not always uh, really related to maintaining order either. Right. Um, and which is why conservatives often get called anarchists. Um, yeah, so and, and England is going to be, or Britain is going to be a somewhat different case because, you know, the real, for example, uh, the American founders were influenced by sort of British real Whig history, which always argued in terms of exactly the, what the founders said, which is this, you know, all of British history is about liberty and, and protecting the prerogatives of the individual against the crown. Yeah. Now, you can argue about how accurate that history was, but they always argued in terms of being pro-liberty, but at the same time being based on English traditions. I think that's right, although I would quibble slightly. I think one of the problems in England um, is that you have, for example, the, the, the parliamentarians of the late 18th century believed the glorious revolution was perfect. Uh, Edmund Burke, particularly, he believes it's perfect. And in order to believe the glorious revolution is perfect, you have to believe there's a place for the monarchy. And that place for the monarchy is, a, is, is sufficiently involved that we would in America not accept it. Right. And so you then have this bifurcated um, historical conception of the monarchy where you keep your Charles James Foxes and your Edmund Burks um, on one side and they say, yeah, 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 there's, there's, there's some room for it. But then on the other side, you have a more um, you know, high Tory conservatism that wants to keep the monarchy, um, uh, you know, at the forefront of, of of public life. In America, to find people who are who are essentially being conservatives of a different order, you have to go to the New Deal. I mean, that, that how I see modern progressives is is essentially as conservatives of the New Deal, right? That that's the constitution and the order they want to maintain. That's what they think is sacrosanct. It's the second founding. Um, right. And, and, you know, it's popular in America.
politician who tries to overturn it is going to lose. Um, but you still find a hell of a lot of young people whose who's sort of political awakening came from reading the Federalist Papers and the Constitution in a way that you don't find in most countries. And that's true. And America is a more ideological country rather than yes. a purely historical one. Sure, sure. So actually, this leads to the question of, in general, how is it you came to leave the green and pleasant land and come to America? <laughs> but I think that's also related to two, two questions I want you to take on, which is, first, I'm going to put this the way people put it to me, though I know it's not quite the way we think about it necessarily, which is, how did you become an atheist? And then the second is, how did you become a conservative? Well, I was always an atheist. I've just never believed that there's a God. Um, it 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 wasn't part of my life. I wasn't told there wasn't a God, but it wasn't impressed upon me particularly clearly that there was one. Um, in fact, I can remember being in school when I was maybe five and being told uh, the the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000. And my teacher told me this story. Well, she told all of us this story. And I said... Oh, so all of the people there had they brought food. They just didn't want to share it. And then Jesus sort of made them feel guilty. And then they shared it. And she said, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. He met, he made the loaves uh, and he made them. Well, how? Well, he, he just did. And I thought that, that doesn't sound very likely. Um, but I mean, again, it's a low voltage thing. I didn't go home and think about it again. Um, so I've always been one. Uh, it's never been a big part of my life. I've never been especially angry about it either way. In terms of conservative, that did change. Uh, I grew up with a fairly centrist British perspective. Um, I thought all guns should be banned. Um, I thought the National Health Service was good, which, is, which you're told in England. That is the national religion, maybe. Yes. Um, uh, I, I'd never really thought through questions that are quite important. You know, for example, well, why do we have global commerce? You know, and, and the answer to that question is because the British Empire and then the American Navy underpin it. But I didn't know that. Uh, so I didn't really know anything. And also, I'd never really had reason to think about anything political uh, because I was born in 1984. And, you know, by the time that I had any sort of conception of what was going on on the radio we'd gone into the 1990s everyone seemed to be happy everyone got richer every year there weren't any big wars at least not wars that affected me right and so i never thought about it uh, i was a kid i had a, you know it was fun i was interested in movies and you know toys and and soccer so uh that was how my life went until 9 11 and then on 9 11 i suddenly started getting interested in politics what was going on um, why the world looked the way it did. And I mean, a couple of formative moments, I suppose, were it had never crossed my mind that anyone would say that America had it coming. I mean, it, it wasn't, I, I loved America, not politically. I had no idea what American politics was like, but I liked America as a place I'd been a lot. And once that happened, I just assumed, well, of course, everyone is appalled and upset. And then uh, I'm from Cambridge in England. There's a professor, she's brilliant brilliant professor called Mary Beard is a classicist and uh, she about a week after 9-11 said on the radio that America deserved it and I, and I, I didn't I mean, it just I thought what <laughs> what um, and then people started saying well George Bush is a moron and I would see him on TV but he seemed to be the one making sense I, I don't mean I don't mean about invading Iraq that came later I just mean right. well look this was a terrible thing that was done we need to find the people who did it and stop them. Um, there was a moral clarity there that I that in, inspired me to look into the world in a way I never had because I was just ignorant and silly. Um, so when I went to university, I did, and I discovered that you know actually what I what I really admired was was the classically liberal tradition that had started in England, and then had moved through and been ossified in the United States. Um, and after that point, I, I, I said I would say I was a conservative or libertarian or what you will. Well, that putting it that way, I'm a conservative or libertarian or what you will. That sort of leads to my next question, which is being an atheist who's on the right. We've talked about the ways that's consistent with being on the right, but also it does make a difference, I think, in the outlook. In that, you know, you describe yourself as a conservatarian, uh, rather famously. Yeah. Uh, that it does make you, I think, a little more on the libertarianish end, uh, a little more on the live, or let, live and let live end of the spectrum. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, 
entirely sure it's the product of a lack of religion. Uh, I think in general, I'm just skeptical of of government and its ability to do to do good and and its ability to intervene without causing other problems. I mean, a great example of this, and this is where I would leave more libertarian than many conservatives, is with the drug war. One of the problems I think that libertarians have is that they have a tendency to pretend that the alternative to whatever the government doing is utopia, hmm. uh, is perfection. And it's not. I mean, look, if you, if you take prohibition of alcohol as your example, it is true that the prohibitionists were trying to fix what was a real social problem. Not alcohol per se. I, I drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> I love wine. I, I'm, I'm not anti-alcohol at all. But there were problems. There are problems. There are problems now. People drink and drive. People drink and get violent. There's domestic abuse. You know, it, 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 we do not live in a perfect world. And it was a lot worse back the real alcohol got stronger and stronger and stronger. People were drinking as much of it as they had before, which meant they were getting more and more drunk. People would, you know, they'd go to work. They'd go to the bar afterwards, spend all their money, go home, and they'd beat their wife. And there was a reason that there was a great female um, uprising in favor of prohibition. People were fed up of seeing their husbands squandering their money and, 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 and hurting them. I totally understand that. But what happened with prohibition was worse than that problem that they were trying to solve. They created organized crime. They made law-abiding people into criminals. They destroyed trust in government. And I, we know the history of this. And I think if you look at the drug war, um, you know, I do not take the utopian position that it would be really great if lots of people started taking heroin. It wouldn't. But I think that the consequences of trying to stop them are so deleterious that um, as a trade-off, it would be worth examining reducing uh, the government's role either completely or a great deal uh, in the economy. Now, I, I don't think that um, the economy of drugs, I don't think that that um, my view on that is informed by religion, although, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe I'm, I'm just don't know enough about religious people to, to know. Um, I think that's more of a hard headed skepticism that I tend to apply across the board um, that I think probably you either have um, or you don't. Right. So we talked a little bit about this, touched on this a little bit before, but how have you found yourself being received among conservatives by not being religious? Uh, you know, is this something that's widely tolerated? Is it uh, raised some eyebrows? I mean, you, you are at National Review, which is sort of the home of fusionism, yeah. of trying to you know combine the religious traditionalism with free markets and make that part of the conservative package. And to be honest with you, except for a few people on Twitter who said, oh, you can't be a conservative if you're not religious or I don't want to follow you anymore. I, it's never really come up. Uh, I wonder if, if I were against religious liberty, I wonder if it would be different. But mm -hmm. as somebody who on conscience grounds is is very much in favor of religious liberty, um, I, I, I've always been uh, been welcomed. Um, I mean, I... <sighs> I, I think that I think we've probably reached a point with with our political partisanship and our divide um, at which those private questions matter less to people than how you vote hmm. um, and 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 on which side you broadly see yourself yeah. Uh, I, I think on. in a way that's almost unfortunate that that's we've reached yes, that I point do too. because I do you know, too. voting and partisanship has taken a greater share. Um, but I also find it interesting that uh, I think part of the reason I've had a similar experience to yours of not getting a lot of grief for not being a believer. But I think it's also because perhaps there's a little less sense of co ideological competition from an atheist wing of the right. It's too small to be threatening. Whereas, you know, at National Review, you might be aware of the history here, you know, that when Ayn Rand uh, had sure. come out with Atlas Shrugged and, and, and her philosophy was first getting influence, there was a sort of attempt to say, let's, let's you know, National Review famously published a very negative review. And I think there was a little bit more of the sense that, you know, William F. Buckley was trying to put together this fusionism of religious tradition with free markets and being an anti-communist hawk. And I think there was more of a sense that we have to keep these people out because they're going to disrupt that project. But I think that project yeah. has been complete enough and successful enough that there isn't as much the sense of competition. 
I think that's right. But I would also separate out Ayn Rand from, say, Russell Kirk. Um, so Ayn Rand's view was, was hostile to religion. I mean, she mm. insulted Buckley on, on, on these grounds. She, she said that he was you know, too, too smart to be a Catholic. Be religious, yeah. 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 So you can see why he might not have wanted her around. But Russell Kirk, on the other hand, I think his view was more, I don't say this in the way they say to Oberlin, but uh, offensive to people who aren't religious. Right. Because if you read Russell Kirk, he is essentially saying you can't be a conservative. You can't be with us um, if you're not religious. Right. Uh, and, and I directly refute that. But I, I just think we've moved on. I mean, I, 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 I think the center balance of um, of of conservatism doesn't include that preconception anymore. Uh, it's gone. Maybe it has to because we've become less religious as a society. Um, maybe the the questions of how religion and the government intersect are narrower. Maybe mm. conservatives are so desperate for adherence. <laughs> well, yeah, I do think that there's the religious, the, the people I know who are religious who are on the right, they're more in a sort of almost defensive mode. It's like they're in a survival mode, especially with you know things like gay marriage and yeah. the sense that you're going to be persecuted for your religious beliefs. And that sort of leads me to, I mean, I think that's one of the explanations for the rise of Trump is they see him as this, you know, he's not somebody who would be embraced by the religious right for his personal life and for his no. personal morality or personal style necessarily, but he's embraced as a fighter for that side. And I thought it was interesting what Ross, Ross Dalvit said a while back is that if you want to know what a secular right looks like, Trumpism is a secular right. Now, I disagree with that, but I think it's an interesting hypothesis of, I, I, I view it more as a non-ideological right rather than a secular right. Well, I think it's rational too. I mean, look, you and I are, are not fans of the president, um, but he, uh, he has fulfilled a role for believers that I think is understandable. And I think that their decision to back him has been comprehensible and arguably necessary. Where I think religious people have gone off the deep end is in their, and this isn't true of all of them, but it is true of far too many religious institutions and, and religiously based institutions, uh, is in their defense of his conduct, his private conduct, his history, um, his comments. But it is entirely rational to say, look, the other side is vehemently anti-religion. The other side does not believe that religious liberty should be broadly construed, but instead that we have a right to pray in our own homes quietly, but not live our faith out. The other side is going after bakers. Uh, the other side is going after uh, free expression. And we need Trump uh, or you know, a Republican president nameless Republican president to stand in their way. I think that is a, again, I'm not a fan of his, I'm not religious, so this isn't really something that, that affects me personally. But I think that is an entirely uh, rational position to take. Now, unfortunately, it's not always, it's not always manifested that way. That, that would be the, the, the cynical realpolitik way of putting it. But often the people who have taken that view feel the need to justify Trump across the board or even to say, which is preposterous, well, I think he was sent by God. You know, God right. sends people in these packets. It's nonsense. Why? It is fine for you to want him as a bullock against encroachment. But let's not pretend he's a good person because he's not. <laughs> well, and I also think there's too much of an attempt to still justify that no, none of the other nameless Republican presidents, you know, of the other option we had would have done the same thing. And I think a oh, lot yeah, of that's them, nonsense. certainly a lot of yeah, them would nonsense. have. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to sort of bag on John Kasich, fine, I'm, I'll sign me up. But I, I really do not see any universe in which President Rubio or President Cruz or President Jeb Bush wouldn't have taken the same uh, the, the same tack on religious liberty, wouldn't have appointed the same judges, wouldn't have had the same. Um, respect for religious people. Uh, you know, this is this is this is a, 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 a Republican position. And yes, there are some heretics, if you'll excuse the word, uh, but they're not likely to win the presidency or the primary anytime soon. Now, I'm I'm a little more concerned about sort of the influence of of Trump and the connection between him and the religious right because I think there is a big question it raises, which is. 
is America defined? It's the question of nationalism. It's the question of is America defined by ideas or is it defined by identity, which it can include racial identity, can also include religious identity. Yeah. So, you know, there are the sort of people who believe, you know, we need to maintain it as a Christian nation. And that's sort of, the, it's really the Putin model. And, and that's why people are concerned about his sympathy with Putin is that there is this model rising up again, a sort of a nationalist model in Eastern Europe of saying, we're going to maintain the identity of our country as a Christian nation. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that does bother me. Um, but I I think that it reminds me more than anything that... Um, that I am just on on a limb. I mean, because the alternative, the realistic electoral alternative to Trump is not what I want, or I assume what you want. The realistic alternative to Trump electorally is progressivism as a religion. Now, that's not a justification for voting for Trump or voting for progressivism, don't get me wrong. Um, but the the people who want to see the United States as a primarily ideas-driven place, uh, a place of diversity, not of skin color, which is the most boring thing about a person, um, but of, of outlook, of geography, of community, um, those people are losing at the moment. Um, you know, they're losing to the sort of Trumpite worldview, but they're also losing to the identity politics worldview on the left. Um, and uh, again, I can understand why religious people look at Trump and say, well, we have to choose him. Um, I just don't think that it bodes particularly well for everyone else um, long term. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it is a it is sort of a Putinist model. But one of the nice things about America, unlike Russia, is that we do have still a, a strong and intact First Amendment. Um, right. We have a strong um, culture of classical liberalism. And it seems to me that Trump's vision of nationalism is actually not that popular. Um, it's just unfortunately popular enough to have put him in charge of the Republican Party in the same way as the, you know, strange worldview that a Kamala Harris has maybe enough to put her in charge of the Democratic Party and we all have to live under it. But I, I, I don't see this as a bottom-up movement. So you think that it's likely, well, you know, this has happened before, that you have a personality who promotes a certain viewpoint and that becomes popular. And then as that personality passes off the political scene, uh, it, it fades away and you get some new personality who comes up and moves the party back in a different way. So it may not be I mean, a permanent. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do think that. Um, I also think that if we end up with the Republican Party that is more nationalist, um, that is more attuned to white working class voters in the long run, I think it's going to look more like Tom Cotton than Donald Trump. Um, and I think that Putin connection probably dies with Trump insofar as it exists at all. Yeah. yeah. Now, one last thing I want to talk about is, is we've talked a little bit about, I think you said, said a few things about what atheists have to offer the right in terms of being able to offer a secular argument that is convincing to a larger number of people in what is a, an increasingly secular society. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, that, I think that's it. Um, if you take, for example, the question of abortion, I mean, I've always been an atheist and I've always been pro-life, uh, and, and you do the math. That means that I'm not an atheist, uh, uh pro-life because I'm an, uh, I'm religious. Um, so to, to me, this has always been a question that is, is totally divorced from metaphysics, mm -hmm. um, that is totally divorced from religious texts that is totally divorced from catechism. Uh, this has been, uh, for me, a, a position arrived at after, I mean, study sounds grandiose, but after examination. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it it is a problem for the right. It's also, of course, good. I mean, it's one of the reasons they have so many pro-life adherents is, is, is that there are so many religious people on the right, but, but, it's also a problem that a lot of their rhetoric is couched in religious terms. 
because the argument in favor of life and against abortion does not require that at all. Um, and I, I, I agree. I think that, that atheist pro-life conservatives have a great deal to bring uh, in explaining why it is that they oppose this practice um, without immediately excluding those who aren't within uh, the club. And, and I actually think the same thing obtains with, with the, the founding. Um, you know, again, I don't mind the idea that our rights derive from God um, because the founders believed that too. Um, but our rights per the founders did not derive from Jesus. They did not derive from the Catholic Church. They did not derive from, you know, Lutherans or what you will. They derived from nature's God. Um, and uh, the the atheists within the movement are probably better placed to explain what nature's God means in practice and why natural law should be respected um, and what historical touch points led the founders to make the judgments that they did than those who have absorbed that phrase uh, without thinking about it. I just want to be very, very clear here that I'm not suggesting religious people don't think about these questions at all. <laughs> um, I'm not. I mean, look, the, 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 again, the, much, much smarter than I People much smarter than I are, are, are devout, including many of my colleagues. Um, but um, if, if you don't believe in God and you also believe that rights have been you know, protected by nature's God, <laughs> you have to do the legwork um, and work out what it is that you actually think. And once you've done that, you're, you're well placed to explain to others what you think. Um, so, yeah, I think I think atheists have, have a, a role to play. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in the fact that, you know, if you go back 150 years, well, I'm a big fan of, a, of an obscure political movement called the Loco Focos. Uh, okay. they, were, they were radical New York City Democrats in 1835, and they were laissez-faire. Now, think of that difference, that they were an urban faction, radical Democrats who were laissez-faire. And you have to think, what changed in the last 150 years that free markets and uh, the Constitution and limited government, small government, used to be the sort of elite urban opinion among the intellectual leaders. And the, the, uh, the, one of the leaders of local focus was an editor of the, of the New York Post who started out as a theater critic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of Frank Rich's uh, trajectory, but on a totally different ideological side. So that's yeah. sort of the way I look at it is that recapturing this sense of you know, free markets and limited government and constitutional government and that sort of thing, which has all the arguments on its side and ought to be the elite opinion of the educated, intelligent, thinking person, which today, you know, strangely, for some reason, despite having so much support for it, is not the opinion of the sort of elite thinking person. But it strips power, if you believe that. Mm -hmm. It strips your power. I mean, I, I, I say this half tongue-in-cheek but the most dangerous people you will ever meet are the people coming out of public policy master's degrees because they've spent their money and time studying how to tell people what to do how to set systems up as they think they should be run and the last thing they want is the implementation of neutral rules that render them impotent it's the last thing they want um, I don't mean that they all have ambitions to be Mussolini they don't but it is, it's a scary proposition to be told, well, you don't get to tell everyone else what to do. And also, I can't tell you how things are going to work out. I mean, look, imagine, if you will, a debate between um, a, a libertarian-leaning presidential candidate and an uh, interventionist-leaning presidential candidate in our current media environment. It's a town hall event. Somebody stands up and they say, and I'm, I'm, I'm in no way casting aspersions upon the person asking the question. They say, I have a question for the two candidates. I'm a single mother and I have a fixed income and I am uh, worried about the future. Can you tell me what you are going to do to make my life better and alleviate my worries? I mean, who do you want to be on the stage at that point? Do you want to be the candidate who says, yes, I'm going to 
implement this law, which will help you at your job, and this law, which will raise the minimum wage, and this law, which will do this for childcare, and this law, which will give you subsidy, and this retraining program, and da 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 da. Do you want to be that person? Or do you want to be the candidate who says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who will employ you. I don't know who will fix. I don't know how the growth will help you. I don't know how uh, the incentives that we will set up will directly affect you. But let me tell you that over the last hundred years, it is my worldview that has led to the alleviation of misery and poverty on a scale that nobody can imagine or has ever beaten. And it is the ideology of my opponent that has led to stagnation. You, you can't do it. <laughs> I, mean, it's just, um, I so, think it's doable, but I think it is. It is. You're right. It, 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 they've managed to couch it in a way that makes it seem like we have the answers. We're going to, you know, we feel sure. your pain. We have the answers. We're going to solve things for you. We're taking action. And it is harder to say, to, to point out, well, here's the ways in which getting out of your way is going to help you. Getting out of people's way is going to help you. It is more indirect. But, you know, there is a whole body of, of, uh, of free market economics, a whole body of history that you can draw on. Sure. And, and there's a lot of, I think uh, one, one of my hobby horses is the most interesting anti-regulatory crusade right now is being done by a bunch of millennial liberals. And it's the YIMBY movement. I don't know if you've heard about this, the yes in my backyard. The yeah, people right, who figured right. out that the reason why they will never be able to afford a home in Seattle, you have these craftsman houses built 100 years ago for steel workers, and you have, they cost a million and a half dollars to buy one now. And it's because of the government regulations and the zoning regulations and all the things right. that have artificially restricted the supply. It's, I think it's fascinating to me that people have figured this out and they've actually made a popular and populist campaign about it. So I think that sort of thing is possible. But I think that, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work to figure out how to do it successfully. It also takes things to get bad, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at Margaret Thatcher and her, her remarkable career, she was not elected in 1979 because people were suddenly converted to Hayek or because people looked at her free market beliefs and said, yes, that is what I believe, too. They weren't. They were angry because we had rolling blackouts and trash piling up in the street and people weren't being buried and the unions were out of control and there were strikes all the time and you couldn't get anything. It took three months to get a telephone unless you were a doctor and, you, could, you know, so, yes, by 1987, where a lot of people who were converted to that sort of Wall Street Journal editorial page mindset, yeah, yeah, there were. But there weren't in the first instance. Um, and I think the same is true in America. I think, you know, Ronald Reagan in 1980 did not win because the country suddenly believed that we needed to deregulate everything. Um, they won because G Jimmy Carter seemed weak and feckless and didn't have a plan to end the Cold War and the economy was stagnant and um, we had terrible inflation. Um, by the end of his tenure, Newt Gingrich could stand up on a stage and sell free market ideas and, and not lose elections as a result. In fact, in fact, win elections. So, yeah, I take your point. I think in Seattle um, and to a lesser extent in the Bay Area, uh, that is true. But that there is always the problem of people who are elite and well-educated do seek power. And, you know, with, with a government as big as it is, it is a shortcut to gaining power to take the levers. Uh, it takes far less work than operating within a free market, unfortunately. And they're drawn to that shortcut because um, it makes them feel good, too. They can tell everyone what to do. <laughs> well, one last thing I want to bring out, which is we talked about how atheism is good for the right in terms of being able to create the secular arguments and that are going to be convincing in an increasingly secular society. I also think that uh, the right is good for atheism, in a sense, in that atheism does get something of a bad name because of the associations with, you know, what have been the big atheist movements of the past? Or what is the, you know, the, if you look at predominantly the, the character of a secular person, I would, when I was, I'm a little older than you, so when I was young, uh, I was a teenager in the 80s, and we had, you know, the secular humanists were the favorite bogeyman of a lot of politicians. And I had to admit, the secular humanists, uh, such as they were at the time, did not exactly cover themselves in glory. Often they were far to the left. They were uh, uh, sympathetic to communism, sympathetic to tyranny. So I do think that 
the idea of, of making, pro- promoting this idea that you can be pro-liberty, you can be pro-constitutionalist, you can be in favor of limited government and uh, not go off the deep end into subjectivism while being secular. Yeah, I also think that religious people are good for, um, and the right is good for atheists in that uh, probably the founding principle of the right uh, is that human nature is immutable. I mean, if that if I look at what separates the right and the left, ultimately, mm-hmm. it is the belief on the right that you cannot create new Soviet man. Now, in religion, that, that is rendered differently. That, you know, either you believe people are born with original sin uh, or what you will. But, but again, you don't have to be religious to believe that. Um, but I think, I think being, being around people who very strongly believe that, that human nature is immutable um, is good for, for atheists because there is a tendency to conceive of human beings as a blank slate. And the consequences of that belief historically have been disastrous, absolutely disastrous. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, Locke was an example of someone who believed that humans began as a blank slate, but not in the same sense that, you know, human nature was was uh, was mutable and could, and could be completely changed. But in the sense that you didn't have ideas preloaded, the software doesn't come preloaded. You have to figure things oh, not, out. N- not ideas. No, um, but. Woodrow Wilson's critique of the Constitution was that it, it was old. <laughs> uh, that it, you know, he said it, it, this was written when we didn't even have the telephone. And of course, it's a silly criticism because it wasn't a telephone manual. It was a manual to counteract ambition. And the founders understood, and I think conservatives understand, this is when they're at their best, mm-hmm. uh, that there is no difference in the scale of individual ambition irrespective of where in history you sit. And they knew a lot, not just about the British, but they knew a lot about the Greeks, they knew a lot about the Romans Mm -hmm. and more. And they understood that there was the same temptation within Roman society as there would be within the new United States. Uh, There was the same temptation within Greek society as there would be within the new United States and that you needed some sort of structure to um, to contain that ambition and, and that temptation and that tendency toward evil even. Um, and I think that the, the progressivism doesn't believe that. Progressivism believes that you can remake people. And um, religious people don't believe that you can remake people. Uh, and, uh, and that is a good part of their, their belief system. Yeah. Um, I, the other I, I find it, it to be a complicated question, though, because in a sense, you know, there are examples of moral reform movements where we have remade people in some specific respect. Like, uh, you know, I live in the South where uh, I, I'm a transplant to the to, 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 to Virginia, where, you know, it was a, somewhat of a shock to me to discover somebody talking about the, there's a train station right nearby here, an old train station. And they were pointing out there was the colored waiting room and this was the white waiting room, white, white yeah. waiting room, you know, back from the days of segregation. We, I didn't grow up with that above the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, so there have been cases where things were regarded as normal and there was a moral reform movement and it was changed. But so I think that, you know, people look at that and say, well, we've changed things in the past. We can change whether you're a man or a woman. <laughs> and so the, there's a, an interesting sort of philosophical question to pick apart sure. about which part of you, human nature, you know, so human nature can be taken to mean just whatever people have an urge to do. And that's not immutable. But there is an aspect of human nature that is immutable, that, you know, people have choices to make between good and evil, that they are not automatically good, that they're going to possibly become ambitious so there's aspects of human nature that are chained that i think this comes back to the enlightenment roots of america that there was this attempt to sort of figure out uh separate what is mere custom versus what is human nature that's immutable and there was a side of that that said everything's custom (laughs) yeah i know i i more meant that 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 People can be changed in their substantive viewpoints over time, which is why nobody really believes that slavery is a good thing now. I agree with you on that. Um, what I don't think changes is uh, 
the desire of human beings to gain power uh, when given an opportunity to exercise it. Um, that I think is constant. And, you know, one of the problems the left has, uh, it's not entirely limited to the left, but it is a bigger problem with the left is that they are more open to the idea that we should have a system without balances and without checks because the right person may come along. Um, at, or maybe a kinder way of putting it would be when the right person comes along, they don't care about those checks and balances anymore. I, I think um, that's a better way to put it because that yeah. really explains our current politics. Why yes, they're very concerned about constitutional checks and balances at the current moment because the wrong person's in power. But, you know, three years ago, when the right person was in power, they were less concerned. You know, yeah. So passing, and, and, doing, changing immigration law by executive order is bad now. It was good then. And, and a, you know, a perfect example of this uh, in, in the, the literature, as they say, um, is, is Marx. I mean, you know, we've all had that argument with the guy who says communism hasn't been tried, right? And, and they say, well, what, what would it look like? And they say, well, for a start, it's entirely voluntary. And you think, well, human beings are never, ever, ever going to behave as described in Marx. It's just that it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. But, but they believe that you, you can make that if you try hard enough. And unfortunately, uh, you know, and people like Eric Hobsbawm said this explicitly, uh, that often comes after the mass killings. Mm -hmm. Well, if we just murder the right people, if we get rid of the kulaks, then we can put people uh, out of out of these uh, these sort of historical um, and savage instincts. But you can't, you can't do it. And and conservatives, I think, do better at grasping that, um, and religious people do better at grasping that than than their opponents. Well, thanks for talking to me. I really I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you. I enjoyed it. My guest has been Charles C.W. Cook of National Review. This is Rob Trasinski. You've been watching Salon of the Refused. You can support us at Patreon under Salon of the Refused, or you can find out more information at the Trasinski Letter, TrasinskiLetter.com. Don't worry about how to spell that. There'll be a link included with this video. Thank you for watching. <laughs>